You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, with what Ellie's been talking about, this is only the third week that we've uh, been talking about this Next Move 2.0. And uh, that's not a lot of time to think about uh, something this big. So as Elliot said, I would encourage you to set aside some time this week uh, to have the conversations. If you're married, you need to have conversations about this. My wife and I had several conversations before we were able to come at uh, what it is that we were convinced that God wanted us to sacrifice and give. Um, so take the time to have those conversations. Set aside the time uh, to pray about this. So with that in mind, let me just pray for us, and then we'll get into the message for today. Father, um, I just pray for all of us as a church um, whenever we have been given an opportunity to expand our generosity. Uh, I know for me, my reflex, is, my first reflex is often a, a pushback or a negative one or reasons why I, I can't give any more. And so I pray that you'd help us to, to get to the point, all of us, where at least our hearts are neutral before you, where we're willing to hear from you. We recognize that everything we have comes from you. And uh, I pray then that you would speak to us through the conversations that we need to have through our time with you, that you would just um, tell us what it is you want us to do on this and that we would then uh, respond. So we pray that you'd, you'd speak to us uh, in this next week uh, before this coming Sunday. And now, as we get ready to hear from your word, we've spent the last six days hearing our world um, propose answers to the problems of this world and the problems in our own life, answers that just do not solve the problem. And so we've gathered here on this day, the first day of this week, to hear from you, to hear about the answers that you have said are needed for us to, to be at peace and to live the kind of life that is, is right before you and pleasing. So I pray you'd open our ears and uh, you'd help us to hear from you this morning. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in this message series called The Difference. We're looking at the difference that Jesus has made in this world. I think the popular consensus, in the modern world at least, is that this world would have been better off without Jesus Christ, definitely without his church. And that opinion is expressed uh, in the words of that great historian, Jane Fonda, and here's what she says about that. It's not hard at all to be hostile to the church. You can go through history, the Crusades, the Inquisitions, and the formal church has a lot to apologize for. Now, honestly, she has a point. It's not hard to find people who have done absolutely horrible things in the name of Jesus Christ. Just this past Monday, in our own local paper, the Orange County Register, they published a front-page story about a new wave of child abuse lawsuits against the Catholic diocese here in Orange County. The reason for the new wave is because the state of California has passed a new statute that extends the statute of limitation that's been expanded, and so now there's a new wave of lawsuits. Now, if you read through that article, just reading even summary descriptions of some of the accusations just makes your blood boil. It's hard to imagine that this actually has occurred, but it has. And Jesus warned us to be on the lookout for people like this, to be on guard against this kind of thing. He said, there's going to be people who come to you in sheep's clothing. He is the great shepherd. Those who decide to follow Jesus are often referred to as sheep. Uh, we are his flock. He says there's going to be people that are going to come to you, and they're going to be dressed up like sheep. They're going to 
make sheep sounds. They're going to sound like Christians. They're going to declare that they're Christians. They're going to get positions even of power. And the truth is they're not sheep. They're wolves. They're ferocious wolves inwardly. So there will always be people who claim to follow Jesus only to hide their fangs. And the church needs to be on guard and anticipate and develop systems to protect the church from people like this. But the record of history shows that there have been many more real sheep than there have been wolves pretending to be sheep. But unfortunately, it's the wolf stories that grab the headlines, that get all the attention, understandably. I mean, the Orange County Register is not going to call us up and want to do a story about how this church protects the children that come here. They're not going to want to interview us and learn all about the extensive training we do for everyone that works with the children. They're not going to want to learn about the background checks that are expensive, that we pay for, that are required for everyone who works with the kids. They're not going to want to get into the details of how we designed that new kids' building in such a way where there's these big, giant windows. It looks amazing, but the whole purpose, the windows into every room, is so that everything is visible. There's no hidden space. All of this is designed to keep the kids safe. That story is not going to make the front page of the Orange County Register. And I understand. It just is not going to help them sell papers. It's the evil deeds that stand out in the flow of history and drown out the many more ordinary followers of Jesus who have followed Christ seriously and in doing so have brought about the greatest movement for good this world has ever seen. It's because of the followers of Jesus Christ following his teachings that we even have the category on our tax returns of charity, the very notion of charity, the idea of modern health care, as we talked about last week, the valuing and protecting of women and children, as we're going to talk about this week, democratic freedoms that we enjoy in this country, the abolishing of slavery. All of these things are now givens in the modern world. But the world was not this way when Jesus arrived. We tend to think that we would have evolved morally to this point, but if you look at history, it's the followers of Jesus Christ taking the teachings and the life of Jesus, making applications that have brought these good things to us. These followers first took his teachings seriously, and they asked, am I thinking in line with the Bible, or am I just thinking like everyone around me? And then they asked the second question. They asked, how do I apply this to my daily life? Am I looking at the Bible and applying it to my daily life? And then they asked a third question. They looked for areas in their unique setting to live out their faith. Where can I make a difference in my world? Just ordinary people like us. They had no idea that some of them would begin entire movements that are a blessing to us today. Now, we can do these same three things that those who have gone before us have done. And that's the challenge of this series. It's a, it's a look back on history, but it's a challenge for us in our current environment to make a difference now. So today we're going to look at how the followers of Jesus Christ raised the inherent worth of women and children in our world. How does our culture view women right now? Well, you can look at pop, pop culture and you get some idea. Beyonce in her popular song called Run the World um, says that in her view... It's, uh, it's time for the girls to take over. Uh, it's time for them to run the world. Katy Perry, in her song, Roar, says this, I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath, 
scared to rock the boat and make a mess, so I sat quietly, agreed politely. You held me down, but I got up, already brushing off the dust. I got the eye of the tiger, a fighter dancing through the fire, because I'm a champion, and you're going to hear me roar. Now, these are pop culture, but it, it kind of speaks to the, the idea that right now, I think all of us would agree, women are on the rise. There'd be a lot of pushback saying, well, they, they haven't risen far enough, and it's because they were pushed down for so long, like Katy Perry says. But women in our culture really are on the rise, and I think that's a good thing. The problem is, historically, the rise of one gender has come at the expense of the other gender. It's kind of this gender wars, this, this tug of war. And in order for women to rise, for example, men must be put down, which is part of what, not completely, but part of what is happening now. And that only feels fair because if you look throughout history, most of history, it's men that have risen at the expense of women. So it's, it's fair. You know, it's, it's the girl's turn now to, to run the world. But when the genders compete, when the genders are at war against each other, everyone loses. Both men and women lose because God has designed us not to compete and try to dominate one or the other. God has created us to team together in the truly important endeavors of this life. And if we're busy trying to put one down or trying to raise one over the other, competing and being at war with each other, then we lose sight of how it is we can work together, how it is that God has designed us to team together. And then culture has all kinds of problems because of that. These gender wars, this gender competition, is driven by uh, the way that we view our, our worth, our value in the modern world. We have an ext extrinsic view of value. Let me define that word so we understand what we're talking about. Here's how Ox the Oxford Dictionary defines extrinsic. It means coming or operating from outside. That's the EX part, the prefix. So if your worth, your value is extrinsic, that means it's derived from something that's outside of you, something that has been added to you and therefore can be taken away from you. So your value rises and falls based on a number of external situations that are true of you as a person. It may be your position, your status. It may be the financial situation, how much you are paid and, and how much you are worth financially. It, it may be what others think of you. Those are all external things. They exist outside of you, and they can be added to you and can be taken away from you. And whenever our view of value of worth is extrinsic, it puts us pretty much in competition with everyone else for all of the external things that we're trying to add to our lives to enhance our value. Everyone else is either higher or lower than me, or they're richer or poorer than me, or they're more or less valuable than I am because of what people think of them. But Jesus taught the opposite. Jesus taught and modeled in the way he treated people that our worth as people is inherent. It's not extrinsic, it's inherent. Here's the definition of that word from the Oxford Dictionary. Inherent means existing in, therefore the prefix, in something as an essential attribute. What this means is if my worth, if my value resides inside, then that's not something that can be taken away from me. And no matter how much I add to my life, I can't increase my value by any of those things. 
That's what it means to have inherent worth. The problem is we, we sometimes don't feel valuable, even though we are. Why? It's because of the one who gave us this inherent worth. It comes from God, our creator. We were made in his image. He, he is the one who places our value inside of us. But we have turned from him. That's what sin is. It's the act of turning away from God and deciding to go out in the world to make our own way. And because we've turned from him, we don't feel the value, the worth that is really true of us. And so Jesus came to repair that break, to invite us to repent, which means to turn back around and to receive his forgiveness, and then to begin to follow him, which will reestablish our understanding, our true understanding of worth, and get rid of this external competition for worth. Now, there's two statements that come out of the life of Jesus. He didn't make these word for word, but I think these summarize two of the very important statements that Jesus made about our value, our worth, that ended up changing the way our world, the modern world, views women and views children, and it raised their inherent worth in the view of everyone. Here's the first statement we're going to look at. You are valuable because you belong in God's family. You're valuable because you belong in God's family. You and I are created to either be a son or a daughter of our creator, of God. In all of creation, there is nothing more valuable than that. But we've all run away from home. We've run away from our family of origin, from God. The term Jesus often uses to describe this situation and the experience we have is that we are lost in this world. We may know how to get home, but we can't find our true home. We're lost. We've all turned our back on God, which is why we are desperately trying to add things to our life to make it feel more like home, to make us feel better. The problem is, without God and a repair in that relationship, we feel homesick. Now, depending on the day, we may feel it more or less, but we all feel and experience the trauma and the sadness of being away from home. We're homesick. So Jesus came, he said this very clearly, he came to seek and to save the lost, to bring us home. And as we follow him, we discover our real value that's intrinsic or that's inherent inside of us. And we also discover the value of other people. It raises their value as well. Now, there's two groups that have been the historic losers as the world has pursued extrinsic value. And those are the two groups we're talking about this morning. Women and children have been the losers in this competition for everything external that can be added to our life to make us feel more valuable. Among the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, there was a popular expression of gratitude to the gods. You see this throughout history. This is their statement. It goes like this. I'm grateful that I was born a human being and not a beast. Next, a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. So according to the ancient Greeks, at least the men among them, the only worse thing than being an animal was being a woman. 
There were 1.4 million boys for every 1 million girls in the ancient world. And that's because so many baby girls were left out to die. Wives in the ancient world were little more than slaves. They couldn't testify in court. They couldn't inherit property. If their husbands died, they were destitute. Women were not allowed in school. They couldn't go out in public without an escort. The only exception for the public rule was if you were a prostitute. One writer of the ancient world put it this way, women had the choice in the ancient world of oppression, either by one man or many. They were going to be oppressed. It was either by one man, their husband, or by many. The Romans had a law called patria potestas, which means literally the power of the father. It gave men the right to beat and even kill their wives and the right to sell their girl children. It was common for girls ages 11 and 12 to be married to much older men. This was the ancient world that Jesus Christ was born into. But doesn't it also sound like parts of the world now? Sounds like some of the stories that keep coming out of the Middle East. Women arrested for not being in public appropriately, not wearing the proper clothing, they're not able to vote, they're not allowed to go to school. So I am grateful that my daughter and my granddaughters will never know the kind of life that many women in the world still endure. And I have Jesus Christ to thank for that. The story of Jesus in regards to women in particular, and children, but we're talking about women right now, the story of Jesus in regards to women was, was different from the very beginning, even before he was born. His genealogy, which was a common precursor to the, the story of a, of a great prophet or a great person in that time, his genealogy features a number of women, not just men. Usually it was just men, but it features a number of women, which was almost unheard of in the ancient world. The birth of Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist, was preceded by a prophetic conversation, which was normally what men did, a prophetic conversation between the two expectant mothers, followed by a long song of praise by Mary, the mother of Jesus. This was very unusual. Then, after Jesus was born and began his ministry, early on, one of the first things he did was he had a conversation with a, a woman at a well, which for Jesus to do this, it, it broke almost every cultural rule that existed at the time in order for him to have this conversation. His disciples were shocked. They tried to stop it, and Jesus proceeded. Then there were the prostitutes that Jesus would regularly talk to and offer forgiveness to and even defend against stoning. But I want to focus on one woman in particular. We could talk about the stories of many of the women and how Jesus spoke to them, treated them, viewed them. But I want to focus on one. This was a woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years by the time she met Jesus. Her condition of bleeding was obviously a direct blow to her womanhood and would have isolated her completely from her community and from her family. She had been basically alone for 12 years because of this condition. 
She had heard of the healing power of Jesus and what he had taught and who he claimed to be. But as a woman in her condition, she knew that the chances of getting an audience with Jesus, well, I wouldn't even call them slim. It was slim. It was just impossible. There was no way she could get through the crowds and be able to have a conversation with him. So she came up with a plan, and her plan was to just try to push her way through the crowds and just touch the hem of his garment as he's passing by, to not even risk a conversation or draw any attention to herself. She just wanted to brush up against the clothing of Jesus, knowing that if he is who she cl he claimed to be, which she believed he was, that even that would heal her. So she did just that. Somehow she made it into the crowd, unnoticed, probably because everyone was focusing on Jesus, was able to push her way forward and just touch the edge of his garment. And as soon as she did, as she believed she would be, she was instantly healed and she could tell. And Jesus could tell that someone had touched his garment. And when he says this, his disciples are, what do you mean who touched you? Everyone around you is touching you. And he knew someone touched me with the faith believing that I could heal them. So he turned around, he stopped this, this procession to see who it was. And we read this in Mark chapter 5, 32 through 34. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, you know, based on her 12 years, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, what Jesus did in healing her obviously caught everyone's attention. But I think, and this is just my opinion, I think that what he called her is probably what lingered in her mind and caught her attention more than anything else. He called her daughter. Now, that doesn't sound like much in our culture, but you have to understand in this culture, this was massive. She did this because she believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was the promised one, the Messiah. He was God in flesh here on earth. And so she knew this is God in flesh walking by me. That's why if I just even touch the edge of his garment, I can be healed. And then to have God in flesh stop and turn and recognize her and look her in the eye and call her daughter and tell her to go in peace, that was unheard of. Now, the followers of Jesus took words like this and examples like this, and the treatment of women began to change. The birth of the church in the New Testament is full of references of women. <clears throat> Paul often refers to their essential contribution. Again, this is unusual in the ancient world. The Bible, you probably know this, has been labeled as anti-woman by many people because it speaks about the unique roles that God has assigned to men and to women in the home and in the church. And to the modern mind, because value is extrinsic, not inherent, because it's extrinsic, if you tell anyone that they can or can't do something, you are speaking about their value. That is not the truth. 
from the beginning, God made the sexes very different. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of capabilities that are the same. But there's a lot of differences. And they have some unique roles because of those differences, men and women do. But that doesn't have anything to do with their value, with their worth. In modern culture, because everything is external, it does, but not in reality. You know, when, when God created the first woman, Eve, he gave her that name. That name literally means carrier of life. That is something I can do. I can't carry life. Not because I have more or less value or a woman who can has more or less value. It's simply because I have a different role from God. Our value is the same. Our worth is the same. But roles can vary in certain ways. Now, God created us not only to be a part of his family, a son or a daughter, but also to be part of human families. And we experience these human families where we are reminded of our worth and our value because we are created to be sons and daughters of God, we experience these human families in two forms. First and most common is what we refer to now as the nuclear family. As we are born into families as sons and daughters, we experience the value of both genders. And then as we marry and have sons and daughters of our own, we experience, again, the value of men and women. The second type of family we experience this in is as we join the church of Jesus Christ. And we become brothers and sisters together. That's what raises our value. God designed both, both of these kinds of families, to protect the value of women. It states the value of both. But the value of women historically, is what needs to be protected. And it's when women are in families and when women are in church families that they are reminded and everyone else is reminded, this is a sister. This is a daughter of God. This is someone to be valued, someone to be protected. Now, this high view of women is not found in other world religions. Particularly, one of the major world religions that does not share this high value of women is Islam. It's not found in Islam. If you've read through the Quran, there's um, one of the chapters are called surahs in the Quran, chapter 33 or surah 33. At the beginning of it, for about five or so verses, there's a, a really interesting section. It's actually a little bit confusing if you read it, but basically it's a five-verse declaration that makes the point that it is okay to marry the wives of adopted sons. Now, why would that be in the Quran? Well, it makes no sense until you know the history of how this particular surah came to be. What preceded this surah is that Muhammad became attracted to the wife of his adopted son, Zaid. Zaid is the third convert to Islam. And Muhammad was attracted to his wife and made that known. And then shortly after making that known, Muhammad went into one of his trances, which is how he came up with the Quran, their holy book, and he heard Allah tell him the words of this surah, surah 33. You can read it, surah 33, uh, 2 through 7. 
His adopted son, having heard these words of the prophet, his adopted son then gave his wife to Muhammad, knowing that it was not safe to deny the prophet something that he wanted. He divorced his wife, and she became the wife of Muhammad. And this impact of this decision and this surah shows up in this part of the world today. An author by the name of Ibn Warwick describes the impact of this event on Islam this way. He says, the Islamic world learned that it is safer to cover your woman's beauty than to be sorry. And that changed that part of the world for women. It is no accident that the countries with the best women's rights all have predominantly Christian populations. According to the World Economic Forum, that is not a Christian group, the World Economic Forum, the 10 best nations for women's rights average a 75% Christian population. Conversely, if you look at the 10 worst nations for women's rights, they average only an 8% Christian population. This is an apparent difference that Jesus brought into our world. Now let's talk about the second source, the second statement of inherent value. The second statement that Jesus made very clear is you are valuable because you get to serve God. Another way of saying this is, as, as a part of God's family, the family business is serving. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a servant. And Jesus made this very, very clear. There is an idea that has dominated human history and is particularly dangerous to children. So now we're going to shift to talk about children. The idea that's been dangerous to children is this, and that is that we should value human life based on its contribution. It's a utilitarian view. It's kind of like the way employers view employees. The problem for children is it takes them a long time to become contributors, doesn't it? I mean, if you're a parent, that equation is upside down for a long, long time. You're putting in more work, more money, and let's be honest, you don't ever get that money back, right? You know, that the, the money and the work and the effort, I'm not, I'm not saying there's no joy, there's, there's definitely joy, but the work, the serving, goes to the direction of the children. And that's been a problem for children historically. It's just they take a lot of work to raise, and they don't contribute nearly as much as they demand. Let me give you an example. This past Monday, my wife and our youngest granddaughter cooked dinner for the family. Here they are um, celebrating one thing they cooked. And I, I use the term they cooked somewhat loosely. So who do you think did most of the work? My wife did. Now, she did do work, and she's learning to, to work and accomplish all kinds of stuff. Here she is actually with a knife, which is a little amazing, but she did a great job with it. But I know that if my wife had just decided to do it herself, it would have been a much quicker process than if she decided to do it with our granddaughter. And this is just an example of the work of raising children. Now, you can make the case for the contribution of children to society at large. I mean, you can make this case. They are our future. If someone doesn't take care of children, then we don't have a future. If someone doesn't have children, we don't have future. So you can make a, 
a logical case for the value of children on society. The problem is society at large never pays the price of raising kids. Who pays the price? Parents. Parents pay the price. And for parents to pay that price, they need a compelling reason to spend two of the best decades of their life in service. They need a compelling reason to do that. But our culture is not offering a very compelling reason or any reason right now. In fact, they're offering a reason not to do this. Instead, we are regularly reminded that you know, just how much children will limit our choices and destroy our autonomy and damage our future career development. And it's not a lie. It's true. They will. They will decimate your autonomy. There is no chance of autonomy if you have kids. You could have been on a career path. Maybe you can recover, but it's going to impact that unless, you know, you're a rock star and can hire five nannies. But most of us don't have that option. Now, if you're not sure about this, if you've, if you've not parented, just offer to babysit. <laughs> just two hours. Just, just try it. You know, maybe get some help, but just two hours. And you'll discover how much work they are. It's, it's really incredible. Or if you really want to jump in the deep end, spend a day with a family that's got, you know, some kids. And just see how well you sleep that night. Just see how exhausted you are at the end of the day. The stats show increasingly, and I'm talking about birth rates, show that many people considering the parenting deal decide that the downside is too great and they just opt out. That's happening increasingly. Or if they do decide to be a parent, they end up leaving large portions of the actual parenting load to someone else. There needs to be a reason for parents, and really for all of us, to invest deeply into children. And Jesus gave us that reason. One of the re He gave us many reasons, but the one I want to focus on occurs when the disciples are arguing about their value ranking with Jesus. So it's a value debate. Which one of us is, is of higher status? And here's what Jesus does in Mark 9, 35 through 37. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a child and had him sit among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is amazing. So they're all scrambling for the front of the line. And Jesus tells them, you're at the wrong end. The front of the line is actually over there, where you thought the back of the line was. And if you want to actually get to the front of the back of the line, which is the new front, you're going to have to find some kids and start serving them because they require the greatest amount of service and can offer the smallest amount of benefit back to you. So Jesus put children at the front of the line. Historically, children have been at the back of the line. I mean, the worst example of this is that the number of kids throughout history in, in the stage of infancy have been killed. I mean, this is just a record of, of history. It happened in Greece, happened in Rome, happened in India, happened in China, Japan, the Brazilian jungles, Eskimo populations, and Africa, Native Americans. It, it was just predominant throughout the world. Now, we can't imagine killing infants, but 
in the name of personal autonomy, we abort 600 babies every year. Christians have always been opposed to these practices and have responded to save these little ones. There's a couple of names that you can look up later if you want. Callistus of Rome, early Christian, paired abandoned children in Christian homes. Aphra of Osberg, she was a prostitute who turned to Christ, and after she turned to Christ, she spent the rest of her life caring for abandoned children because as a part of being a prostitute, that's where many of the children were abandoned was from prostitution. For the first three centuries after Christ, his followers would, were known for taking orphans into their homes and adopting them. Then to meet the demand, the rising demand of orphan children, there were orphanages. The first orphanages were provided by the Christians. It was the early Christians who strongly opposed this practice known as infanticide exposure. This is the killing of newborn infants that were unwanted. So much so that it was the Christians who, for the first time ever in 374 A.D., got in the Roman world, got this practice outlawed. And this protection was a standard feature of Western civilization until the 20th century. Now the church is doing what it's always done, protecting and caring for those who are precious in the sight of God, who cannot protect themselves. Today... Christians create and support crisis pregnancy centers like the local one we support. It's called Horizon Pregnancy Center. So far this year, this one organization that we partner with has saved 373 lives, babies. 373. Compared to 600,000, it's a drop in the bucket. But if we do what Christians before us have done, we do our part, we can make a difference in this world. I think every one of these 373 lives would not think this is small. So I have some next steps for you to consider as we wrap up. First, if you have not made this decision, I encourage you to consider it seriously. Become a follower of Jesus Christ. Make the commitment to accept him as your Savior and your Lord. In other words, join the family of God. Nothing that you can add to your life or can be taken from your life can make up for this. And then secondly, I would encourage you to elevate your serving. Now, let me be clear. The act of serving is not what makes you more valuable. The act of serving is what connects you to your family roots. This is why serving feels so good. This is what you were created to do. So take a look at where you're serving and, and ask, is there some way I can enhance this? Is there some way I can step up my serving as a part of the evidence of my value? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the value that we have inherent from the fact that we have been made in your image as either a son or a daughter of yours. God, I pray that you would help us as a church continue to value the women among us. We thank you for all the women here and the precious gift they are to us as a church, to our families, and from you, we thank you. And we thank you for the little kids, the children that we're going to get to see run around when we walk outside this room. We thank you for the future that's represented. We pray for the parents as they make the sacrifice that's required to be on the front line of serving these little ones, God. I pray you give them strength and help. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. 
Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.